This morning when I got here, uh, Anna said, well, Grandpa, what story are you going to tell today? And I said, well, do you mean, you know, in, the one you're going to get in junior worship or in here? She says, no, in here. And, and I, I kind of just kind of blew it off. And she said, I hope you're telling the story of the talking donkey. Because that's, you know, her, her favorite story. I said, no, I saved that for your bedtime now. Uh, but she didn't let it stop there. She ran over here again. And she says, Grandpa, you know, what story are you telling today? I says, well, we're going to be talking about Melchizedek. And she said, not again. <laughs> well, that may be your immediate response this morning as well, but we're going to continue uh, looking at our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I, I heard something years ago, and I don't remember the exact wording of it, but it said something to the effect that no matter how good a sermon might be, if it leaves your hearers asking, so what? You failed as a preacher. Since then, I have always tried to make sure I don't end a sermon leaving that question hanging in people's minds. Now, that's not to suggest everyone always gets the point of a sermon, only that every sermon should have a point to be gotten. Well, apparently the author of Hebrews was concerned about that as well. He's gone to great lengths to demonstrate the superiority of Christ's priesthood over that of the Jewish priests. He's taken us back to history to show us how Jesus' priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. But he understands that no matter how beautifully something is said or logically the arguments are reasoned, if people go away saying, so what, you've gained very little. So he goes on in chapter 8 to make certain we get the point. Since Jesus has a better priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, he has a better ministry, is a better mediator, and has brought us a better covenant based on better promises. And if we understand what all that means, the so what should be answered for us. So let's see if it does. He begins by making it clear that Jesus has a better ministry. We're in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Indeed, Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. 
And the primary reason his ministry is so much better than anyone else's is that it takes place in the very presence of God. Now, the word used for ministry here isn't the ordinary word used for ministry. It's a rarely used word from which we get our English word liturgical. It refers to a priestly ministry, a service rendered on our behalf before God. Well, obviously, the best place to render such service is in the very presence of God, and that is where Jesus is. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is seated at God's right hand. He's seated in a position from which he could reign and dominate, but a position from which he has chosen to minister to intercede on our behalf. He's a minister in the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle of the Lord. Now, if that were not the case, he wouldn't be a priest at all. He doesn't meet the qualifications of an earthly priest. His earthly lineage doesn't allow it. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He couldn't offer the gifts and sacrifices ordained in the law, even if he wanted to. But as we'll see in chapter 10, he offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices while he was on earth. And then left this place to carry out a ministry of reconciliation that goes far beyond anything the Levitical priests could ever do. After all, they merely served in a copy and shadow of heavenly things. They served in a tabernacle that had been pitched by man, not God. They served in a representation of the true abode of God. Now, they were very faithful to follow the instructions given to Moses. And as we'll see in chapter, chapter 9, there is great significance in the design of the tabernacle. The ladies have been learning that this year. It's an amazing, amazing picture of God entering into our our lives and our heart. But the tabernacle was not the real thing. It was merely a physical representation of something that exists in another dimension altogether. And even though the Shekinah presence of God did inhabit the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, there was no way an earthly tent could contain Almighty God. His dwelling is in the heavens. And by that, we don't mean in outer space somewhere. He exists in another realm, the real, eternal realm that is only vaguely pictured in this physical world of ours. You see, there is indeed so much more beyond what we see. In fact, science indicates that there are at least ten dimensions. I think some of them say more, don't they, Jonathan? Now, what is it? What's it up to now? You don't know. It just keeps growing. They, they sense there's more dimensions out there than, than we can sense or feel or, or, or directly experience. We only know personally of four. But there are other dimensions out there. Well, God dwells in a world unbound by our dimensions. The eternal world behind and beyond this one. And that is where Jesus is, 
presently ministering on our behalf. Now, this dimensionality thing, don't let it freak you out. Just realize that Jesus is in a dimension where he can be right here, right now, and you not see him. But it's real. And it's a dimension to which we will enter at death. It's an amazing concept. It blows my mind. But Jesus is currently ministering in that dimension that's outside of our personal experience as well as in our personal life today. Well, that makes his ministry a far better one than any that could be rendered by anyone else. And since his ministry is so much better, it should be obvious that he is a better mediator as well. Let's go back and read the, the sixth verse. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, this is actually a pivotal verse. It concludes the brief statement concerning the better ministry of Jesus and introduces the better covenant enacted on better promises. But it will help us to understand Jesus' position in the midst of all this if we'll take a moment to simply focus on the fact that Jesus is the mediator who makes all we have possible. Now, the word mediator comes from a word meaning to be in the middle. It signifies the middleman who brings two parties together. Now, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He stood between God and man, receiving the law from God and presenting it to man and pleading on man's behalf when he violated the terms of the covenant. So Moses was the middleman between God and man. But now Jesus is the middleman. But he's not just the channel through whom God presents his law, nor does he merely plead on our behalf. He is the one who personally made possible the new relationship between God and man. He stood in the middle and did more than convey messages. He personally bridged the gulf that separated man and God. He stood between sinful man and a holy God and paid the price required to bring them together. He shed his own blood and offered it as a covering for sinful man. He established a way whereby we, though sinful, could be made acceptable to a holy and perfect God. Through personal sacrifice, he made possible a new relationship based not on law, but on what he did. He was therefore able to establish a much better covenant between God and man. And it's a good thing he did because there were some real problems with the old covenant. A new and better covenant was needed, and God himself declared this to be true 600 years before the new covenant was actually established. Let's read on, verses nine through, or 7 through 9. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. Now, the first covenant was based on the law of God, something held in highest regard by every Israelite, whether they followed it or not. And to suggest that the first covenant was faulty would no doubt seem blasphemous to these Jewish Christians to whom this letter is being written. The author immediately points out that that is not his evaluation of the first covenant. It's God's evaluation of the first covenant. For if the first covenant had been faultless, he reasons, then there would have been no need for a second. But God himself, through the prophet Jeremiah, had declared some 600 years earlier that it would be necessary to effect a new covenant with his people. Fault with the first covenant was it was based on the law. Not that the law was faulty, the law was perfect. But the covenant based upon the law had a problem. And the problem was man. He just couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep it. The covenant, based upon the law, stated that only if men would abide by the law would God bless and protect them. Only then would he fellowship with them. The law was plain enough. It spelled out what a man must and must not do if he would enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God. But the law did not give to man the resources needed to abide by it. Now, it's true, it gave him a process whereby individual sins could be covered from the sight of God, but it didn't really offer a remedy for man's sinful nature. In fact, like a mother's admonition not to eat the cookies, it made men want to sin all the more. So the covenant broke down at its weakest element, the human Element. Man just couldn't abide by the terms of the covenant. And that created a serious problem because the covenant was not negotiable. You know, an agreement entered upon by two equal parties is usually the process of negotiation. And if Moses could have negotiated an agreement with God, I'm sure it would have been more to our liking. It would have been written in such a way that we could have abided by the terms. But this isn't that kind of agreement. The word used makes that clear because the Greeks had a word for a two-party negotiated agreement. And that word is not used here. The word that's used is the word they used for a will. It denotes a proposal that one person makes and the other either accepts or rejects. You, know, you don't bargain with someone's will. 
The terms have been established by the benefactor, and you only get what's offered if you meet the terms laid out in the will. Well, that's the way God's covenant with Israel was established. They were not in a bargaining position. He stated the terms of the agreement and asked them if they wanted to meet the terms. Now, he knew they couldn't meet them. Even when he made the offer, and Paul makes that clear to us in Galatians. But they didn't know it. They thought they could. They thought they could meet the terms. And quite frankly, that's why God made the covenant. He wanted them to discover that they could not meet the terms of the law. That seems a little convoluted to us. But that was the purpose for the law. To show us what we could not accomplish. He wanted them to discover they couldn't meet the terms of the law. Only then would they be ready to admit that they were incapable of deserving God's favor. And be willing to humble themselves before him. And accept an offer of grace, of unmerited favor. It's essential that we understand it's impossible to earn our standing before God. And the law did that. That was a purpose for the law. Well, in Jeremiah's day, after the ten tribes had been conquered by Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah was about to fall to Babylon, God revealed to them that a new covenant was coming and not like the old one at all. It would be based on something else. And as we've just seen, that something else would be the person of the mediator. That gave real hope to a nation in despair. This new covenant would bring with it new hope, new promises. And while all the details of how it would work weren't made known to Jeremiah, he was at least given a glimpse of those new and better promises, verses 10 through 13. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This new covenant revealed to Jeremiah contained at least three distinct promises. Three promises that ensured that it would be far superior to the old covenant. And the first promise had to do with the location of the laws of God. The laws of the old covenant were carved in stone. The laws of the new covenant would be in the minds and hearts of God's people. Now, that does not mean... There would be no law, no commandments. 
that everyone would just be free to do whatever they wanted to do or whatever their conscience told them to do. Laws would still be given. In fact, as Jesus so clearly pointed out, the laws of the new covenant far exceed those of the old. Where the old said, you shall not commit murder, the new stated that to be angry with your brother or to declare him to be worthless was the same as murdering him. And where the old had said, you shall not commit adultery, the new said, if you lusted after a woman, you had already committed adultery with her in your heart. So the demands of the new covenant were actually greater than the demands of the old. But the motivation for obeying them would be different. Instead of obeying because of outer compulsion, now obedience would come because of an inner desire. Our hearts would be changed. And the desire to please God would come from within. Obedience would be the result of love, not the response of fear. And even though it isn't mentioned here, with the new covenant also came the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that empowering element of God himself that lives within us and enables us to live life free from the bondage of sin. So the new covenant brought with it the promise of a new heart in tune with God, empowered by God. It also brought the promise of a personal knowledge of God. No longer would God reveal himself only to select individuals. In the Old Covenant, the only people who really knew God were the prophets. He spoke to them, and they in turn spoke to others. The only knowledge the man on the street had of God came secondhand. In the New Covenant, however, all who would become God's people would have a personal relationship with him. He would speak to each one the same through his written word, illumined by his spirit. And they would all have equal access to him through prayer for wisdom and guidance and help in times of need. Now, this doesn't mean there's no need for teachers and preachers in the New Covenant. Teachers are still needed to help clarify and unfold the revelation of God. And preachers are still needed to exhort, reprove, and rebuke God's people. But your knowledge of God isn't limited by what I or anyone else tell you. God has made it possible for you to have first-hand knowledge of Him and His will. That's a promise not shared by all who lived under the old covenant. The final promise mentioned here has to do with God's mercy in dealing with our sins. The old covenant, while establishing a procedure for dealing with sins, never really did cleanse the worshiper of his sins. For as we'll discover in the 10th chapter, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sins. 
In fact, in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin year after year. Every time a sacrifice was made, the worshiper was reminded of his sinfulness. He was always conscious of his sins. With the new covenant, however, came the promise that God would remember their sins no more. Through the sacrifice and ministry of Jesus, God's people would find full and complete forgiveness for their sins. And that forgiveness can be found nowhere else. Only Jesus, the perfect high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, can rid a man of his sins and give him a new heart. That's because Jesus has a better ministry and is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. And that answers the so what question to the priesthood of Jesus. If we could come into an eternal, personal relationship with our Creator, we must understand that such a relationship comes only through Jesus. And if we would have our Heavenly Father invite us into his presence, we must first invite his Son into our heart. You know, we talk a lot about Jesus being our Savior. And I think we've understood for many, many years that he's the only way to God. So what I just said here hopefully isn't anything really new to you. But, you know, we're constantly being challenged today to, to broaden our view and to embrace other options and not be so narrow-minded. And we tend to be sucked in by that thinking. It's not popular, not popular at all today to suggest that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no man, no woman, no child comes to the Father but by him. You need to understand why that's true. So you can stand firm. Don't sell out. To do so is to lose the gospel. It's to give people an empty, vain hope that will accomplish zero. If what we've just said is not true, we of all men are most to be pitied because we believe the lie. But if it is true, and I'm absolutely convinced it is, we have the key that unlocks the future for anyone. We've got a message to share. You need to understand it. This may seem technical, and Anna's not again. May have been your first response to here we go again. Digging in the life of Melchizedek. But you've got to understand how central this is and how important this is. Jesus is the only way.
only way to the Father. And it is essential for us to embrace him and to invite him into our heart so we can enter into that new covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father. If you're tired of the load of your sin, let Jesus come into your heart. If you desire a new life to begin, let Jesus come into your heart. I don't know why this hymn is not in our current hymnal, but it doesn't matter now that we show them on the wall. So let's stand and sing it together. <laughs>